Amen. Let's take our Bibles and open to the book of 2 Timothy this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 we'll be looking at here in just a moment. But when we open our Bibles to the very first page of the very first book, we read, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. At the very beginning of creation, God spoke. And God has continued speaking ever since. And what we hold in our hands today that we call the Bible is a record of God's communications to mankind and man's responses to God's speaking. God speaks even if man does not always listen. And how God speaks to man today, I think, is a subject that is very much worth our consideration. It's a topic that I myself have been meditating on for several months now because I think there's a lot of confusion amongst Christianity about how God is speaking to us today. And much of how we live our lives from day to day will be determined by our beliefs regarding how God is speaking some believe that God is still giving special and specific revelation to individuals today, just like He did to the prophets of old. Some believe that God speaks to them personally in an in a inaudible but yet very real voice, revealing plans and giving specific directions. Others believe that God is done speaking entirely, and we just have to do the best we can with what we already know. And so with all of these competing views about how God is speaking today, I think it's very important for us to answer the question, which view is correct? How does God speak to us today? And like everything else in our Christian life, everything else about our faith, the truth is found in Scripture and in a proper understanding of what God has already said in His Word. God has spoken, and His words for us were inspired and have been preserved for us today. It is true that God is still speaking today, but He is doing it through the pages of Scripture, through the words that He inspired and preserved. And He is not speaking to us through these words in some kind of a magical or mystical way that we have to find some hidden meaning behind the text, but rather God has stated truths for us in Scripture that we need to learn, we need to understand, and we need to apply to our lives today. That is God speaking to us. He does not use dreams or prophetic revelations as He did in times past because His written Word is completed and it contains all the information that we need. Over the next few weeks, we're going to consider the subject, How God Speaks. And today I want to start by looking at the Bible to learn about the sufficiency of the Scripture. God's Word is enough. We do not need further, special, specific revelation from God on any matter, 
because He has already given us in the Word of God everything that we need. Scripture is sufficient. We need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God that He's already given so that the Holy Spirit might use that Word to cast light on our path that we might walk in it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, look with me at verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Heavenly Father, please bless your word as we look into it this hour. We have been told repeatedly that your word is perfect, that it is sufficient, but yet so often we, we question and we doubt that in practice. So Lord, encourage us today with this thought that you have given us all that we need in your word. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a very simple outline today. The first point we're going to discuss is the insufficiency of man. And the second point is the sufficiency of God's Word. When it comes to the Lord speaking to us, we really have only two options. We can either trust in ourselves to discern what God may be saying to us, or we can trust that God has given us His written Word so that we can repeatedly go to it and know exactly what God said. It really boils down to trusting in our own selves, that is our own intuition, our own feelings, our own ideas, or trusting in the written Word of God that He has given. And I want to begin by making a, uh, a statement to you. And it's this, that because of sin... We, that is you and me and everyone else, we can and we do make mistakes. Would you agree with that statement so far? If you say, no, not me, I, I've, I've, I don't make any mistakes anymore. See me afterwards, I want to know your trick. I want to know how you do it. No, we all make mistakes because of sin. We can then come to wrong conclusions about God, about ourselves, and about what God wants us to do. Now, I'm not saying that everything we think is wrong, but we all need to at least accept this, that it's possible that we can be wrong. Correct? With that in mind, let's consider this a little more deeply. Just how insufficient are we? How insufficient are we to know what is true, to know God, to know what God wants us to do? Well, let's think about some of the things that Scripture reveals about us. Number one, Scripture reveals that man's heart is wicked. Man's heart is wicked. Jeremiah chapter 17, beginning in verse 5, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man. 
and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, and not inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and in whose hope the Lord is." And whose hope the Lord is, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things who can know it. According to this passage of Scripture I just read from Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 9, we have two options. We can either trust in man, that is ourselves or anyone else, or we can trust in God. Those are the two options in any area of life that it boils down to. Either we trust God or we trust someone else, including ourselves. What God says is that if you trust in man in any form, in any way, if your trust in man supersedes your trust in God, then you're going to be cursed. You're going to end up like a tree that is withered and that is dying because of a drought. But if you trust in the Lord and do not trust in man, including your own self, then you will be blessed. And instead of being a barren and dying tree, you will be a fruitful tree. That even when the drought comes, you won't have any cause to worry because you are so rooted in the Lord that you'll continue to thrive. Now, why is this the case? Verse number 9. For the heart of man is deceitful. That's why. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. The reason that you cannot and should not trust yourself or anyone else, any man, is because the heart of man is deceitful. It's so deceitful that man himself cannot even understand his own heart, cannot even fathom the deceitfulness of his own heart. Man is insufficient because man's heart is wicked. Now there are some who would say, well, that's true of the unsaved, but it's not true of the saved. They would say that because a person trusts Christ as their Savior and they're forgiven of their sin, their heart becomes perfect. There are some who even allege that once you're saved, you are incapable of sinning. Friend, that is absolutely not true. Scripture abounds with teachings, principles, and examples that indicate otherwise. You know, I'm always astounded by what the Apostle Paul said of himself. Among other things, you know, at one point he said that he was the chief of all sinners. He's not speaking in past tense, by the way, when he wrote that. He said, I am currently, present tense, the chief of all sinners. He recognized that in him there was still the ability to sin. And when we think about the deceitfulness of our heart, even though you may know Christ as your Savior, that does not change the fact that your heart is capable of deceit and evil. I think of another example in the New Testament that happened early on in the book of Acts. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. 
The church in Jerusalem was just exploding and it was growing so quickly and they had a lot of needs because there were a lot of people there that uh, um, uh, may have come in from other places and had stayed around for a while. They weren't expecting and so there was just a lot of needs. They had a lot of people in the church that had different needs and so people started to give generously. At the end of chapter number four, we read about a man named Barnabas who sold a piece of land and gave the proceeds of it to the church to help meet the needs of the people in the church. Well, we come to chapter five and we were introduced to a now infamous couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira also sold a piece of land and they brought an offering to the church, but they had hatched a little scheme. They decided that they would bring the offering to the church and they would, they would lead people to think that they were giving the entire proceeds from the sale when actually they were keeping back part of it for themselves. And so they bring this offering, uh, starting with Ananias, he brings this offering into uh, uh, to the church. And there is Peter in Acts chapter number 5 that's, uh, uh, that Ananias is, is uh, uh, bringing this offering into. And not sold, we are not told how it happens, but Peter knew that something was wrong. That, that there was a deceitfulness going on here, that there was a lie being told. And he made a statement to Ananias that, that I think all of us should sit up and listen to. He said to Ananias, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? You know, every indication of Scripture is that Ananias and Sapphira were members of the church. And scripturally speaking, that means that they were saved, baptized members of the church. So he was not speaking to a lost person. The indication of Scripture is that he was speaking to a saved person who had given in to the temptations of Satan. And the way Peter phrased it is that Satan had filled their heart. Why is man insufficient? Because the heart of man is wicked. We have no guarantee that everything that comes out of our heart is going to be good and right. There's always a possibility that something wrong might come from us. Not only is man's heart wicked, but man is insufficient, number two, because the Bible says our mind is deficient. Our mind is deficient. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. When I say our minds are deficient, I, I, all I mean is that you and I don't know everything Sometimes we forget things that we did know. And at any time, we are capable of misunderstanding and having thoughts that do not line up with the truth. Not all of our thoughts, not all of our thinking, not all of our beliefs, no matter how sincere they might be, are guaranteed to be right. That's always possible that something we think does not line up with the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, Paul here is reminding us that we are in a spiritual war, not a physical war, but a spiritual war. And in the spiritual war, the battlefield is our mind. 
and at any given time, we're going to have a host of thoughts that flow through our minds. And we, in this spiritual fight, cannot afford to just let every thought run rampant through our minds. Instead, we are commanded to bring every thought into captivity. The word has the idea of to arrest something, to uh, incarcerate it, to capture it, to shackle it, and to put it on trial. We are to bring every thought into captivity. We're to arrest it, and we are to force every thought to come in line with the truth. Notice the indications of verse number 5. Cast down imaginations, things that you just make up and imagine are true. Cast them down. The high things that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. Okay, what God knows to be true is the absolute standard of truth, you understand? Because God is incapable of error, He's incapable of lie, He is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the knowledge of God, that's the ultimate standard of truth. And anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God needs to be cast down. And we're to take all those thoughts, we're to bring them into captivity, and notice the last expression, to the obedience of Christ. Now, throughout this entire idea here, verse number 5, is this overriding principle, don't miss it, that you and I are to control our thinking, not to allow our thoughts to run away and our imaginations to control us. Now, God would not command us to do that if it weren't possible for us to do it. You and I choose what we dwell on. We may not be able to choose every random thought that pops into our heads, but when a thought comes, we choose what we do with it. Do we dwell on that and do we act as if it were true or we, do we scrutinize it and force it into compliance with the truth of God and to bring it into the obedience of Christ? In other words, just because I think something, that doesn't mean that something is right. I wish our world could understand this because there's, our world is just consumed with people who think it's right because they think it's right. Well, I thought it, therefore it must be right. That's not how it works. Our imaginations do not determine reality. Our thinking does not determine truth. But yet Christians act as if that was the case. Well, I think this, therefore it must be true. It may be, but have you analyzed it? Have you scrutinized it? Have you compared it to Scripture? Have you asked God to show you from the pages of His Word, is this the truth? Don't assume that just because you think something it may be true because your mind is deficient. In other words, you are, you are entirely capable of thinking things that aren't true. And you can wish all that you want that they were true. You can work yourself up to where you are so convinced that you, you feel like it must be true, but it doesn't make it true. In addition to this ability that we have to think things that are not true, our mind is also deficient because there's always going to be some knowledge that we lack. Always. Always. No matter how smart you are, no matter how educated you are, no matter how much life experience that you have, you're always going to lack some kind of knowledge. And the worst kind of, uh, of ignorance is when you don't know what you don't know. 
Donald Rumsfeld made famous as saying, there are known unknowns and there are unknown unknowns. Everybody laughed at him for that, but he actually had a very good point there. There are some things that you know, okay, I don't have all the facts here, but there are other things that you don't even know that you don't know the facts, you know? <laughs> so there's always going to be more to learn throughout life. So our mind is deficient just because we don't know everything. We always have to consider that there may be something that we're missing. That's why there's so much emphasis put in the New Testament on knowledge and learning. Colossians 1 and verse number 10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. The insufficiency of man. Man is insufficient because our heart is deceitful, because our minds are deficient. And number three, man is insufficient because our emotions are fragile. Our emotions are fragile. Emotions are powerful. And if left unchecked, they will rule our hearts and ruin our lives. A life lived by emotion is a life of impulse and instability and inconsistency. It's a life of double-mindedness where one day I feel like doing this and the next day I don't. And as James 1.8 says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 25. Proverbs chapter 25. Emotions are real. By the way, we cannot afford to ignore them. I think Satan loves nothing more than to watch Christians ignore their emotions to the point that their emotions take over. And instead of being driven by the truth of the Word of God, they're driven by their feelings. Proverbs 25, verse number 28 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. No rule over his own spirit. First of all, notice how that, that is a very clear principle that we can and we should have rule over our own spirits. And we understand in the context of Scripture, we're talking about submitting to the Holy Spirit to develop in us self-control that is spirit-filled self-control. We can and we should rule our spirit, not let our spirit rule us. Our emotions, our feelings, our impulses, our intuitions are not sufficient to guide us through life. Because they change from day to day. Every one of us in here, if we're honest, will admit we have mood swings. If you don't believe you do, ask your spouse, ask your mom or dad, ask somebody close to you. They'll tell you, yeah, you have mood swings. There's some mornings you wake up happy, perky, ready to go, ready to conquer the world. There's other mornings you wake up and, I mean, you're growling at everything. You know why we do that? Because we're human and we're sinful. And we allow our feelings to determine our behavior many times. 
Feelings should never determine behavior. Truth ought to determine our behavior. And if we don't rule over our own city, notice, or over our own spirit, notice what verse 28 says. We're like a city that is broken down and without walls. Now, what do you call a city in Bible times without walls? Defenseless. Defenseless. Every little attack is going to harm and going to endanger the city, and somebody's going to come in and somebody's going to conquer them. The walls of the city were the protection. And if you don't rule over your own spirit, then your spirit will rule over you, and the result will be destruction. Think about some Bible examples of, of very good men of God who allowed at times their, their emotions to rule them. Think about Elijah. You know the story of him on Mount Carmel. He had that showdown with the prophets of Baal, and whoa, what a great victory it was. Right after that, he gets a letter from Jezebel. Basically, she said, I'm going to kill you. And what does Elijah, the man of God, do? He runs. He runs off into the wilderness and he hides. In 1 Kings 19, verse number 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a Jupiter tree, juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. He allowed fear to control him, and look where it led him. The story of Jonah is another great example of this. Jonah was not motivated by fear, but rather by anger. At one point, Jonah was a a, a God-fearing prophet of the Lord until there came a message from the Lord to go to a people that he didn't like and preach a message to them that would lead to their deliverance. And he said, no, I don't want to do that. They don't deserve it. And in his prejudice, he went the other direction. Of course, God patiently and graciously worked with him. And finally, Jonah went to Nineveh. He preached, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Listen, by the way, that was not a prosperity gospel message right there. That was all he said. He was so angry, he was so bitter, he was so prejudiced that he did not even offer the people hope. He just condemned them outright, but yet they repented. And because they repented, God was merciful. And so what does the Bible say about this wonderful success when an entire town turned to God? One of the greatest revivals the world has ever seen. Jonah 4 and verse number 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore... I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That is one of the most absurd passages of Scripture. Do you hear what Jonah just said? I knew it. I knew, God, that you were merciful and gracious and long-suffering. I knew that you would repent of the evil, and that's why I didn't want to come here. And so it's just better for me to die right now. Now, you and I read that, and we think, that man's crazy. How did he get there? Anger. Uncontrolled anger. He let his emotions take over. I think about a New Testament example. Peter, good guy. We're studying his second epistle right now on Wednesday nights. But you know, he had some... Impulse control problems. He did. 
He was very zealous. He was always gung-ho, everything, 90 miles an hour with bursts up to 120. I mean, that was just Peter, right? He was a guy that always saying something, especially when he should have kept his mouth shut. And there was that one occasion where he was so zealous that he argued with Jesus. He said, nope, everybody else might, might betray you, but not me. And in his zeal, he contradicted the words of the Savior. And you know, Jesus told him, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And sure enough, that very night, Peter denied the Lord three different times. In Matthew 26, 75, Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. He was carried away with his zealousness, his fervor, that emotional burst of energy, and contradicted the Lord Jesus Christ and found out just how wrong he was. See, our emotions are fragile. When we allow them to lead us, it always results in ruin and destruction, pain. Even things like sickness and fatigue can break us down and cause our feelings to change. And we just had time change this weekend. That means I get an extra hour to preach today, right? But you know, in the springtime, they're going to flip it back again because they can't quit messing with their clocks. We're going to lose an hour of sleep. We're all going to come dragging in that Sunday morning. And you're just going to feel tired sometimes. And when you feel tired, you just don't feel as happy, right? Not usually. If our emotions are that fragile, why would we let them be any guide to us at all into the truth? But yet so many people, I feel like this is true. I feel like this is what I ought to do. I feel like this is what God is saying to me. Our feelings are terrible. Terrible guides into the truth. Man is insufficient because our emotions are fragile. We're limited. We're susceptible to confusion and deception. We're tempted to sin when we're drawn away of our own lusts. Our feelings change from day to day. Since this is true, why would we trust ourselves? Why would we trust our intuitions, our impulses, as if they were authoritative and should control our beliefs, or decisions, or behaviors. Yet Christians repeatedly fall back on their feelings, their impulses, their ideas, saying, that's what God told me to do. Friend, that's a very self-centered approach to the Christian life. We need to reject self-centered Christianity and accept that only the Scripture is the authoritative revelation of God to us. So number two, let's notice the sufficiency of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be looking back there. In these two verses of Scripture, we find some wonderful truths about the Word of God. God's Word is perfect and holy, just like God Himself. And therefore, Scripture is enough. It's sufficient. We don't need further revelation. We need to get into the revelation that God has already given and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us through the pages and through the words of Scripture to give us an understanding of the truth of God's Word that we might live it, that we might obey it in our lives. 
2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Notice with me, first of all, the perfection of the Bible. The perfection of the Bible. How did we get this book that we hold in our hand today that we call the Bible? These 66 books made up of Old and New Testaments, how did it come to be? The unbeliever would say, well, it was just a collection of writings that people put together over time and it contained a lot of helpful information and so people just kind of stuck with it. And at some point, somebody elevated it to the status of actually being spoken from some God somewhere. And and that's how we came to that belief. But that is not what Scripture says of itself. In fact, making that case for Scripture is actually contradictory because Scripture claims to be the very Word of God. So you can't say it's a good book and helpful but also say it's lying, okay? The Scripture says of itself that it is the Word of God. In this particular passage, Paul, writing to Timothy, reminds him of this truth, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Many of you know this, but the word inspiration is translated uh, from a word in the original that literally means God-breathed. Inspiration of God, it is theopneustos, and it means that God breathed out the Scripture. So just like when you and I speak, we use air, breath, that comes through out of our body in order to make sounds that communicate words to people, God breathed out the Scriptures to give it to us today. It was divinely inspired by God for man. The Scripture is the communication of God to all of humanity. It came as God worked through specific individuals over the course of many generations. Second Peter 1.21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost um, superintended on the writers of Scripture so that the very words that they wrote down were the words of God. He did it in a way that didn't, did not uh, replace their personality or anything like that. But God worked through these various individuals, about 40 of them over the course of about 1,600 years, to put down the words on paper that we call the Bible today. The words of Scripture are the very words of God, and therefore they are absolutely perfect. They are absolutely perfect. Because the Bible is the Word of God. The Word of God carries with it all of the divine attributes of God Himself. God is as good as His Word, and God's Word is as good as He is. Think about this. God is absolutely true, and so is Scripture. Everything that God says is truth. He is the foundation of all truth. There is no truth apart from God. He is the ultimate reality. Everything depends on Him. The Bible is the rational presentation of that truth using words. In order to comprehend it, we have to engage our minds with the enabling of the Holy Spirit to understand it. And when we do that, what we learn is what is true. The Bible is the truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If it's in the Bible, it's true. Now the Bible obviously does not contain all the truth in the universe. You could not pack that into one little book. But everything that the Bible says is true. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9, The law of the Lord is perfect 
converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Bible is absolutely true. And the truth of Scripture is not found, by the way, through some mystical process of discovering some hidden meaning in Scripture. That's an ancient heresy known as Gnosticism, by the way. That there's some kind of a secret code in the Bible and a secret meaning that you have to, you know, tap into some form of, of uh, intangible, irrational intuition and impulse in order to really get what the Bible means. No, God didn't do that. Because if, if the truth of Scripture was dependent on our ability to perceive, then it would not be an accurate communication of truth. But rather the truth of Scripture is not dependent on you or me. It's dependent on God. And it is our duty just to get into the Word of God and find out what did God say. And when we find out what did God say, that's when we know the truth. It's absolutely true. It's perfect because it's absolutely true. It's perfect, number two, because it's unchanging. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, ever. Our choir sang for us, us this morning that wonderful song, Almighty, Unchangeable God. The Lord said, I am the Lord, I change not. And just like God does not change, God's word does not change. It's a blessing to me. I go back and I pick up copies of books that contain scripture quotes from, you know, hundreds of years ago. Guess what? Same words that I read today. I have in my office a family Bible from the 1830s. Guess what? Same words from today. You go back and you can can look at manuscripts from hundreds and hundreds and some of them thousand or more years ago and you find out, oh look, there it is. God's Word does not change. God didn't say one thing yesterday and going to say something different tomorrow. It's the same. It's always in agreement. There is no contradiction. And when we read the Bible, we know we are reading what God wants us to read. And by the way, that's not because some textual critic somewhere said, all right, we have verified that this is God's Word. We know that it's God's Word because God said that He has given it and He will preserve it to every generation. Our faith rests on God's ability to keep His promise, not man's ability to piece together some lost fragments of Scripture. God's Word is unchanging. Jesus said... For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The Bible is perfect because it's absolutely true. It's unchanging. And number three, because it's complete. It's complete. Now this is a very important point as we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. We have to settle this in our mind that the Bible is complete. We're not missing anything. And there's no new revelation that's going to come. God has given us everything we need in Scripture. Just as God is complete in Himself and needs no one or nothing else to complete Him, God's Word is complete and needs nothing else to complete it. Now some would say, well, you need the Scripture and you need your Spirit-led intuition to really know the truth. No, the Bible doesn't need anything else to be complete. It is complete in and of itself. This is not a minor point of doctrine, by the way. This is crucial because either the Scripture is complete or we are still left wandering. 
Whatever word God has given, it is all that we need. Now that was true all during the time that God was giving the scripture. At any given point, whatever word God has given, that was enough and complete for everybody up to that point. But it's especially true now that the scripture has been finalized. God gave the Bible. And that Bible is everything we need. It's complete. You know, Jesus believed that the scriptures of the Old Testament were the complete revelation of God to man up to that point. He said in John 5, 39, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Isn't that interesting? Now, how do we know that God is giving, done giving specific revelation? We'll turn to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. The last book written chronologically, the book of Revelation written about 90 A.D., somewhere in that decade. Look at in this last chapter, almost the last verses, verses 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. That was the, almost the final admonition given chronologically in the history of man. It was this admonition, don't add anything more, don't take anything away. And when the Apostle John set his pen down from writing the book of Revelation, God's word was complete. God has not written any more because He does not need to write any more. What He has given us is enough. We know that the Bible came from God. But what about our feelings? What about our impulses? What about our ideas? What about our, our thoughts? What about our intuitions? Can we be sure that any of them came from God? Or is it possible that some of them might have come from our flesh, that might have come through the working of Satan to suggest things in our life? Isn't that possible? If we can't be sure that our thoughts, our feelings, and our intuitions are, are from the Lord, but we can be sure that the Bible is, is it not wiser to trust the Bible? And some say, well, sometimes God will tell me things, and, and, and I know it's right because it agrees with Scripture. Well, if it agrees with Scripture, then why did God have to tell you again? And if it were to disagree with Scripture, then we would know that it's not right. So does God need to give us any more special revelation? No. The Bible is complete. The perfection of Scripture. Very quickly, let me finish by giving you the prophet of the Bible and then the perfecting of the Bible. The perfection of the Bible is the fact that it came from God and therefore it is as perfect as God is. The profit of the Bible is, that is the P-R-O-F-I-T, what it benefits us. Because the verses say that it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is how the Bible benefits us. It tells us doctrine, that is what is true and what is right. It, tell, it reproves us. That means it tells us what is false and what is wrong. 
It corrects us. That is, it tells us how to make what is wrong right, and it instructs us in righteousness. That's how to keep what is right right. That's the prophet of the Bible. But then lastly, the perfecting of the Bible. And by that I mean the perfecting work that the Bible does in us. And this is what I want to close with because this is at the heart of the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture. If you're there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, look again at verse 16. Verse 17 rather. God's given us Scripture. It's inspired. It's profitable. It gives us doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Why? Verse 17. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. God gave us Scripture so that we could have everything that we need. The idea of perfect there is whole, complete, or finished. Furnished is another idea there. It's got everything it needs. And in fact, there's a play on words here in the original because the word translated perfect, that the man of God may be perfect, is the word artios. The next phrase, truly furnished, is a form of that word ex-artios. And so in other words, it's saying that the man of God may be perfected, completely perfected unto all good works. It means that we, through Scripture, have everything that we need. It means that God's Word is all you need to do all that God wants you to do. The only thing that you need beside God Himself to be what God wants you to be, to know what God wants you to know, to do what God wants you to do, the only other thing you need beside God Himself is His Word. It is through the Word of God that we are truly furnished, but we are completely furnished to do what God wants us to do. So somebody says, well, I believe the Bible's true, but I, I feel like I need something else. Do not, they do not understand the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't need further res- revelation because God's Word is enough. But the question we must answer this morning, is it enough for me? The more you learn to rely solely on the Word of God, the more you understand its power to sustain you and to give you everything you need. Many people don't understand the sufficiency of Scripture fully because they have never lived fully sufficient or fully dependent on Scripture. Every thought, every feeling, every idea, every impulse, every intuition we have should be brought into captivity. It should be scrutinized and it should be made to obey the knowledge of God that is revealed in Scripture. Understand this. Some people talk about being spirit-led. You are not spirit-led unless you are Scripture-led. To be spirit-led is to be scripture-led. Most people, a lot of people that I've encountered, they they talk about being spirit-led. They're talking about some mystical, some intangible, some irrational form of intuition that they are being guided by. That's not Bible. Bible doctrine is the Holy Spirit guides us by bringing to our minds the things that God has already spoken. Walking by faith means living by the Bible because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Don't be a feeling-led Christian. Immerse yourself in the Bible. Follow the instructions 
that God has written for you. Heavenly Father, we bow humbly before you and recognize that we are insufficient. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think any things as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of Christ. Lord, we are helpless and we are hopeless without you. Our hearts are deceitful. Our minds are deficient. Our emotions are fragile. But God, I thank you that you know our weakness. And you have given us your holy word. So that we might know you. So that we might come to faith in you. So that we might grow as we look into the pages of Scripture and see our Savior revealed. We might grow to be more like Him. God, thank You for giving us Your Word. Forgive us, Lord, when we have allowed our feelings and our impulses and our ideas to control us instead of allowing Your Word to be the light unto our feet. Lord, I pray that we would be people of the book and that by following the written word, we would glorify the living word. I pray it in Jesus' name.